Today on Sagittarian Matters, there's Facebook drama, animal drama, falling in the spirit, speaking in tongues, and drawing comics. With fine artist, cartoonist, and friend to the show, Jessica Campbell. Stay tuned. Hello from the Sagittarian Matters Social Distancing Studios in Tahunga, California. Listeners, I deleted Instagram for the weekend. Beth Pickens, friend to the show, often recommends people delete Instagram. I believe she's doing a challenge for June. It's supposed to free up your life. It's supposed to let you be more in touch with your projects, with your life's work. And so I did it for the weekend. Did I meditate? Did I clean? Did I go outside? Did I do more than a 20-minute yoga YouTube video? The answer, listeners, is no. What I did when I didn't have Instagram was search for a different, lesser form of social media. And this led me to Facebook. Facebook, you know, not a lot's going on on my feed. It's a lot of my geriatric family members. But when I dig a little deeper and I go into my local groups, neighborhood-specific, that's where things really start heating up. So this weekend, with my one wild and precious life, I went on a group called All Things Animal Sunlin Tahunga. This group, I, I don't usually go there because it's a lot of people just trying to get rid of their animals, and it's upsetting. But I, I, I was jonesing. I, I had to itch. I just scratched this itch. And I found what to me is really exciting, which was a flyer saying there's a black bear in my neighborhood. Okay. Black bear in Verdugo Hills. Reported sightings. There's a couple photos. He has brown fur. He is looking good. He has like a paper plate or a pancake in his mouth, maybe some injera. I don't know. He's looking great. I hope I run into him. I mean, I, I don't. I hope he's like in a tree somewhere, but I would love to see a bear sometime. Anyway, all that is to say, I start reading the comments. Okay, so the person who wrote about this, the bear expert of our neighborhood, apparently we're going to call her Rena. All right. That's what I'm going to call her. So Rena posts this flyer. Things are going to get heated up in a second. Someone named Leslie says, just a note, we do not have black bears in California. This is a brown bear, our state animal. The best thing you can do for people in the area is lock up your trash cans so they do not have a food source. Keep your pets in at night and have on bright lights. They're more scared of you than you are of it. Thanks, Leslie. Rena comes in. The last California grizzly was actually shot in Tahunga like a hundred years ago, making them extinct. Leslie responds. Thank you for the polite correction. It's appreciated. LOL. Rena comes back again. All caps. This is not a brown bear. Brown bears have a distinctive hump in their shoulders. Black bears can range in color, tan, cinnamon, brown, and black, but have flat shoulder-to-hip bodies. Leslie responds, Okay, y'all. Sorry for an innocent mistake. No need for caps, LOL. The point still stands that people need to lock up their trash cans to help keep them away. Rena's back. Leslie, I totally agree with you about the trash and getting rid of birdseed, outdoor pet food, etc., but it's not a small difference. How you handle a brown bear attack, how you handle a brown bear attack is the exact opposite of how you would handle a black bear attack. Leslie responds, <laughs> Rena, I'm not going to sit here and argue over a bear, LOL. People need to be proactive on keeping food and resources away if they want to keep wildlife away. <laughs> This is their home, T-H-R-E. We are the ones that decided to live here. They won't attack unless they feel threatened. Rena's back. Girl, no one is trying to argue with you. All you had to do is go back and delete or edit your comment so that it says don't leave trash out instead of changing the subject. Leslie's back. Rena, 
I said I made a mistake and that my original point still stands. Considering that you and others had provided info, I wasn't going to delete it. You're the one going on about bear attacks. Her mic drop is an emoji of the face where someone is um, crying so hard their eyes are squinted shut. And uh, in some emoji versions of this, they are crying. So um, that's it. Uh, Just, you know, a lot of people. And then somebody, apparently there's like a lot of comments that got deleted because someone said, and this is why I worry about the bear. People get into a pissing match on Facebook about the bear. Can you only imagine a bunch of terrified, hysterical people in person reacting to this poor creature? Comments removed. That means, listeners, the comments I just read you were just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so that's what's going on over here. I'm living my best life. Um, The other thing going on is that my Snow White's Paradise on the deck has turned into a little bit of um, a scrub jay and lizard dictatorship. So I've started putting out bird seed and dishes of water and I bought some peanuts so I could feed them to the squirrels and maybe have them make a nest in my hair. And unfortunately, what's happened is every single animal that used to hang out near my deck, little finches, hummingbirds, the hummingbirds are still around, they're, they're robust, little finches, squirrels, different animals, little fat brown bird, they're all gone. Why? Because the darling scrub jays, these little blue jays, have been ah, making that noise ah, ah, and dive bombing every single other creature that comes within 10 feet of my deck. They have a monopoly on me. They have a monopoly on my food. I bought the peanuts for the squirrel. Guess who loves peanuts? Scrub jay. I try to put the peanuts different places so that the chunky little squirrel gets an opportunity to eat. Nope. Not when scrub jay's on deck. It's as if their job 24 hours a day is to monitor my deck and see when the buffet gets refilled. That's what's going on over here. Is it going to be like the movie The Birds the next time I bring out a bag of peanuts? Absolutely. I'll talk to you from there. Okay, listeners, I hope that you enjoy my talk with Jessica Campbell today. She throws down some deep knowledge about making comics. We both talk about our uh, religious trauma from growing up in sometimes evangelical households. Hers, it was all the time. For mine, it was only some time. And, uh, and that's it. Jessica's a lovely person, and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. Jessica Campbell is an interdisciplinary artist originally from British Columbia. She's the author of three graphic novels, including... Most recently, Rave, Withdrawn and Quarterly, which we're going to talk about today. Her work has been exhibited at museums and galleries throughout North America, and I was the adult flower girl at her wedding a few years ago. I was trying to fit in here somewhere referring to her as Satan's Bride because we talk a lot about religion, but I really couldn't find a place. That said, please enjoy my talk with cartoonist and friend to the show, Jessica Campbell. Jessica, can we do a speed round? It's called Hot or Not. I want okay. you to transport yourself back to your household when you were a teenager. <laughs> God. Um, just tell me if these things were hot in your household or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ouija boards. Oh, not. No, not. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween decorations. Absolutely not. No, those go in the fireplace in my household. Falling in the spirit. Oh, that's hot. Yeah, that's hot for sure. That's that's a that's a thumbs up. Speaking in tongues. Hot. <laughs> that is hot. Acknowledging <laughs> yeah. Wicca or witches or the environment. Oh, I mean, acknowledging them, I guess it depends in which, which way you're acknowledging them. The existence, mm. sure. Uh, um, but it's, it's to be sort of um, uh, pushed aside, including the environment that's there for us to, to sort of mine resources out of until it's gone. Well, I, I appreciated that panel. It's like, this is our dominion. Um, yeah. <laughs> MTV, hot or not? Oh, you know what? I'm from Canada, so we didn't have MTV, <gasps> but we did have much music. I think that was sort of, that was neutral. Watched oh, a wow. lot of much music, um, but yeah, it was uh, not taboo. 
Progressive, watched, progressive. Yeah, we watched a lot, a lot of television. Uh, Peggy's saying much music is not hot, but she wasn't in Canada during the Rick, Rick the Temp era. Um, and Sukien, uh, Lee was on much music. Much music was hot. What about lock-ins? Is that what, did you, did you oh, have lock-ins? You know what? We didn't do, we did in our, there were some lock-ins in like the rec center, but um, not through the church. We didn't really oh. do any lock-ins. Yeah, that wasn't a big thing. And lastly, Christian rock, hot or oh, not? Very hot. In my household, yes. Christian rock is number one. Um, Christian book and music store, also very hot in the household. Also a sort of um, religious uh, um, version of the Babysitter's Club, because that supposedly was not Christian enough, called the <laughs> Best Friends Club. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There was a time when I liked Green Day, and so my mom tried oh. to get me into MXPX. Oh, I had the- some MXPX CDs, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I actually, like, I named. Oh, go ahead. No, no. If you the, like punk, you're gonna love yeah, MXPX. Exactly. The plan. I named the planet in the last book. The men's planet is called MXPX, um, uh, based on my favorite band. Well, wonderful. <laughs> so, so we know that you grew up in an evangelical. Christian mm-hmm. household. And I wonder, you know, I know that that kind of leaves, like for me still, if someone brought out a Ouija board, I'd mm-hmm. be like, I don't know about that. Have I, you done it as an adult? No, no. Okay. I was so freaked out by them yeah. as a young yeah. person. And they yeah. were so like that kind of like you're channeling the devil thing was so uh-huh. real that yeah. even as an adult, I'm still a little bit like, I don't want to, if I had a yeah. demon into my house. Right. <laughs> so I haven't I just, done it. I don't know that I, I, I think like I've gone so far the opposite direction that it maybe would make me feel a little queasy, but I, uh, but I don't believe in it at all. I, I absolutely don't believe in spirit. Aaron's always talking, my partner, Aaron is always talking about aliens and ghosts and stuff like that. And, uh, I just absolutely don't believe in it. What about like for me, and this is different from your church, but I grew up sometime mm-hmm. in Catholicism. If somebody mm-hmm. was eating a bunch of communion wafers in front mm-hmm. of me, I would be a little mm-hmm. bit like, <gasps> like mm-hmm. there's you just sh- kind of that superstition built in. Have you gone to Montreal before? Yes. Uh, um, in Quebec, because it used to be really Catholic there uh, and is no longer. So you can go to the dollar store and buy communion wafers as like a snack. Um, it's it's just, <laughs> I guess that's the one thing that they're holding on to is the communion wafer. Um, can you tell listeners just your overview of what is in the book and what are the themes? Yeah, so the book is about this protagonist named Lauren who is being raised in a really um, conservative kind of cloistered evangelical church while also attending public school and she develops a, uh, you know, sexual romantic relationship with a um, Wiccan girl at school, which leads her to having this crisis of faith and sexuality. Um, so the book, a lot of the book focuses on the church and the, the church's uh, attitudes towards women that I experienced growing up in that environment. What what was the denomination called? My specific denomination was uh, Evangelical Pentecostal Charismatic. Oh, God, um, I love, doesn't that sound like it does sound good, right? The charismatic thing, which I guess there was like a tent revival in the 1920s called the charismatic tent revival. It's where people were speaking in tongues and faith healing and stuff like that. So that was big. Um, that was big in the church. Is that what, um, what did you, cause you had a similar in some ways. Well, so my family went Catholic when I was in sixth grade, but then at some point my mom got mixed up with some faith healers. Mm. And so I, A, here's some things we have in common that you don't know. <laughs> I have spoken in tongues oh. and fallen in the spirit, which both mm. of those things are going down in the spirit. Both of those mm-hmm. things sound so gay to me. <laughs> um, both of those things have happened to me at a miracle mass where somebody put okay. their hand on my head. Yeah. And then I fell in catchers. My mom had recruited uh-huh. volunteers as catchers to stand behind people. Mm-hmm. So when they were healed by the Lord and mm-hmm. fell backwards, somebody could, mm-hmm. you know, lay them on the ground and they could go mm-hmm. blah, 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 mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for as long as they wanted to. Yes, I've done that as well. And uh, the catcher is an important 
facet of the faith healing uh, so you don't, in fact, injure yourself further. Um, very familiar with that vibe, that scene, speaking in tongues. Yeah, it never thought about how gay it sounds. It does sound quite quite gay, speaking in tongues, falling, and going down. Going in down spirit. in the spirit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be like a middle schooler about it. <laughs> um, yeah, well... Welcome to the club. Through my entire adult life, when people find out this little fun fact, they're like, mm. what are you talking about? Mm. And I don't know if what it was like for you, but for me, it was like, it just was a little bit of like free association babbling. It wasn't like the some spirit like entered my body and started speaking in like Aramaic. It was just like me being like, like just however I wanted to. Yes. I think this is the case for most people, for everyone. Um, I... I um, I mean, so in the Bible, it says that, uh, you know, people get overcome by the Holy Spirit and speak in the, the tongues of men and angels. And, uh, you know, so theoretically speaking in tongues could be like spontaneously breaking into French or some language you don't know, but I've never <laughs> witnessed that happen. It is 100% of the time, the sort of like free association babbling uh, of which you, you speak here. So. Just perfect Aramaic. Yes. Yeah. Like... <laughs> it felt when I did it, it felt sort of like being like you can work yourself up into a sort of trance state, uh, and there's so much pressure. Like if you have a faith healer or a pastor coming up to you, everyone's looking at you, they're touching you. It's it's like you know what's expected is that you you know become overcome by the spirit and and fall down and it's just easier in my experience it was just kind of easier to give in it's what's kind of like they're like don't break the vibe like here's the vibe (laughs) we're all like at a 10 for jc and we're coming over to you like don't break the vibe and if you do break the vibe watch out because we might try to make you get to the vibe by more aggressive means right (laughs) because if you break the vibe it means that literally the devil like yes. Tim Curry from Legend or whatever, whatever with the horns and the, I may be mixing up different movies, but you know somebody in red with horns and like yes. a buff chest has yeah. and, and like pan feet has overtaken yes. you. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of casual talk of the devil. Like you know, there was a guy who went to church with us who had some kind of mental illness. I don't know, like maybe he was schizophrenic or something. And I remember my dad just being casually like, oh yeah, Calvin, Calvin's, uh, he's possessed by the devil, like no big deal. Oh, so-and-so he's possessed by the devil. Like it's a real cash sort of thing in, in the environment I grew up in at least. I was just telling somebody that, do you know who Kembra Fowler is from um, the Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black? She no. like, her hair is shaved back to here. She'll paint her whole body blue and has like real scraggly big black hair. Or she'll paint her body red. Anyway, once my mom and I went to a head shop and they were playing, um, I don't remember what music they were playing, maybe like My Life with a Thrill Kill Cult or something. And there was some like voluptuous horror of Karen Black posters. And my mom was like, that place was satanic. And that's how she says it. And that's how I could ask her to this day. I could say, Mom, remember this woman and hold up a picture of yeah, Kendra yeah, Fowler? Yeah. And my mom will be like, that's satanic. And yeah. she just, she cannot, she cannot with the satanic anything. Yes. Okay. I actually, I do know who she is. I can see the satanic uh, vibe um, coming through. Yeah, there is a lot of satanic stuff in our life, but it would be sort of random. Like Harry Potter was okay. Because I think my mom kind of advocated for it, but uh, what was what was satanic? Uh, the troll dolls. Troll dolls were no go. Uh, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons was no, but Lord oh, of the Rings was. Not. But Lord of the Rings was okay because my dad yeah. had read it and he enjoyed it, and so. <laughs> Um, my mom thought that Gandalf was like the Holy Spirit. Like, remember that part where he was using the power of the Holy Spirit to push back the demon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. That logic checks out. Um, it did feel sort of unpredictable to me as a child. But now with the, the benefit of hindsight, I do see that Gandalf uh, has control of the Holy Spirit. Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but that's uh, troll dolls. 
Yeah. Especially with the little jewel in their belly button. That's- <sighs> Those are the worst. The ones with the jewel. No, that's uh, the jewel of Satan. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what the troll doll thing, where that came from. It wasn't always also. There was a point in time at which there was a culling of the troll dolls. Uh, we saved one like knockoff troll doll that's hair was half coming off and it was really no jewel uh, that was very precious <laughs> the culling of the troll dolls <laughs> sounds so traumatic yeah well I also want to say at some point as a high schooler I had a friend come over just like a punk zine friend and my parents inquired about his religiosity and he said he was agnostic and I got in so much trouble. It was like he said <laughs> that he was an abortion doctor slash cannibal. Like I just had this dread in the pit of my stomach. Also once I went to a Christian camp where there was bad weather and they said that was Satan trying to drive us out and mm. kids were freaking out, mm. crying that mm-hmm. Satan was closing in. So yeah. <laughs> All of these good memories came to me as I was reading your book, and I was thinking about what it took for you to, A, like, what it took for you to break away, what was your final straw of being able to separate yourself from the church and then write this work, which maybe was a long time. Yeah, I mean, so leaving the church was, it. uh, I wish that I could say there was a single moment where I kind of... um, made a decisive break, but it was just this slow erosion of my, I was like a genuine believer at some point as a teen, young teenager. And I did start, I, I kind of came to this realization that I couldn't just inherit my beliefs wholesale from my parents that I had to come to my own decisions about things, which led to me you know, reading a little bit more widely and visiting some, I went to like the Baha'i center in my hometown and talked to them or asked them like, what, you know, what's Baha'i all about? And they were very nice. So I was trying to go investigate other faiths and reading. I read some philosophy when I was a teenager and I got interested in existentialism. It was very angsty. And I wrote, I I remember writing a paper about Sartre as a teenager and I showed my dad who I respected a lot uh, and he read it and then he said this is all bullshit Um, you know sort of like angry that I was mm, I don't know like considering anything outside of uh, Christianity Um, and uh, and that sort of to me I hadn't explained to him what I that I was like Part of what I was doing was trying to bolster my faith by being open to the possibilities that they're, they're, you know, just reading about other possible ways of uh, moving through the world. Um, so I hadn't told him I was doing that, but it was very disheartening to me where it just sort of like opened my eyes to the fact that he and the church at large was kind of, was just opposed to critical thinking or any kind of questioning. And I was like, well, how can this be real if it can't stand up to even like a single question? Um, and then I got a job working at a bookstore when I was 16 and they they assigned me to work on Sundays, which sort of was how I got out of going to church. And it, it just kind of like kept snowballing from there. I had a boyfriend in high school who's stepmom was asking about our church and I was like we do faith healing and uh, you know speaking in tongues and all these things that um, you know she acted sort of interested in at the time but then in retrospect told this boyfriend that um, you know it was insane and that like my church was insane which had never occurred to me because it just seemed normal growing up that way but then the, the final straw when I went when I moved to Montreal to go to college I had considered trying to find a church in Montreal. And then the last thing my dad said to me before I got on the plane was that I had to find a church. Uh, You have to find a church when you you get there. And I was so angry about it that I was just like, no, I'm never going to church again. Um, And now I don't, now I don't believe in any of it. I'm like the least spiritual person on the planet. So the book, I think like that experience of growing up in this really intense environment and then slowly over time becoming disillusioned with it uh, and also the kind of attitudes towards women and all these different attitudes have really impacted my 
life immensely. So it's something I've wanted to make work about for a long time. And it just took me, you know, the second half of my life uh, to kind of come to terms with it enough and develop my skills as a cartoonist enough that I felt comfortable addressing it directly. Working in fiction allowed me to you know, make the story more engaging to create amalgams of different people and situations so that they work better in a narrative sense than how things might actually have happened. Uh, so I started by, um, really specifically, I started by writing down point form notes of like what I wanted to have happen. Like I want there to be a really intense eyebrow plucking scene since that seemed to be a big part of my life in the early, late 90s. Uh, or I want there to be Christian rave because that was again a real phenomenon of that moment in time Uh, and then I ordered them and for this book I decided to write a script which I hadn't done previously but it gave me this another layer another layer of like editing possibilities Uh, and it allowed me to kind of try to make the dialogue more fluid and make the pacing a little bit less short uh, or like a slower pacing um, was enabled through writing the script. I really, I appreciated the pacing very much. Hmm. I thought it had a really nice tone and it had a nice level of introspection. And I think we still got to have a full experience with the protagonist, even though she, you know, as a teenager, having these things happen around you and then feeling the repercussions of them as you just let them happen. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted, you know, originally, so one of the things with the book is that the gutters are pretty, pretty big. And originally I'd intended on including text in the gutters that kind of gave insight into what was happening. I think one of the things that comics do really well is you can show this exterior and interior interior experience simultaneously and I had intended on showing you know that she had this rich interior experience that was taking place alongside all of these things that were sort of happening around her and to her Uh, but in working on it I realized that I wanted readers to have their own kind of like reactions to what was happening without having it be dictated through the text directly. Um, I just heard you say somewhere maybe in your video (laughs) about the about comics being this mixture of poetry and graphic design Mm -hmm. and I think I hadn't heard it said in that way like I'm always Mm -hmm. trying to say to students like it's like poetry use the mind breaks (laughs) to your advantage Mm -hmm. how do people speak how do you want to see them speak they don't speak in paragraphs generally Mm -hmm. um but can you say a little bit more about that because I know that you come at this as a fine artist who's been through Um, who's been through school, who's had to think about graphic design, who's had to Mm. go through the editing process and workshopping process in your work, but also Mm. as an instructor. Mm. How do you see the comics process? Because you also are a late-in-life cartoonist. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so, hey. Uh, So, um, yeah, I do think of it as a combination of poetry and graphic design, which is not my own... Um, that's something that I kind of came to through listening to other cartoonists talk about the medium. So people like Ivan Brunetti and Seth and Chris Ware, and even I think Linda Berry would say something similar about it. Um, I think that it, it can kind of be broken down in a couple of ways. So one is like you mentioned poetry. If you think about the way the text is broken up or the way the images are broken up, uh, there's like this inherent rhythm to them Uh, The example that Seth gives when he talks about this is Peanuts and Charles Schultz. And if you read Peanuts strips, you'll realize there's often this kind of beat, beat, pause, beat rhythm to it, to the structure of the jokes. Um, So it becomes really obvious in instances like that when you're reading four-panel gag strips. But that's something that's just inherent within the medium and even in longer form uh, projects like graphic novels. Uh, And then in terms of Graphic design, I think that, you know, with comics, you're really reading the images uh, as part of the text in a way that's quite different from looking at a painting in the museum or something where you're meant to 
contemplate it and spend time thinking about the image. In comics, it's like more immediate. You're you're absorbing the information to propel a narrative forward, generally making generalizations here, uh, which I think is more related to graphic design. It's also in making my work, I think a lot about moving the eye around the page and thinking about say a spread as both, you know, a single image as a spread and individual panels at the same time. Um, So yeah, I think that that, that's sort of, uh, uh, sort of sums up how how I think about it. I lo- I mean, I love how thoughtful you are about it. I think that's the thing. When I teach comics workshops, I simultaneously want to imbue them with that Linda Berry feeling of like, just do it, just get it on the page, go with it. But then after you do all that, then step back and consider all of these things as you move to your final penciling or your next editing process. Yeah, it's. I think it's a tricky thing uh, that that sort of like making and the analyzing processes feel like two different phenomena. Um, they feel really different to me. So, um, so yeah, I think it, the nice thing about comics, like you point out, is that there are these steps often if you're doing penciling and inking or even writing a script that allow for uh, a back and forth between like, making and analyzing yeah and those I think it's wise to really pry those apart because if you have the analyst or the editor or your parents on your shoulder when you're just trying to get this when you're trying to just channel the story through your Ouija board into the paper it really can hinder the process and make you be like wait a minute what yeah I find it I don't know I don't know what your experience is like making comics but I find it super stressful (laughs) and like every step of the process really stresses me out and I have to kind of break it down or find mindless tasks like drawing the panel borders uh or or doing things like thumbnailing really tiny with a ballpoint pen on lined paper so I don't think about it very much like it's um constantly I'm constantly breaking it down so it's like less anxiety inducing and thinking about yeah your teachers or your parents or your peers or whatever while you're sitting at the drawing table is just like uh um, too stressful yeah you got I just gotta get them out of there and just be like I'll deal with them later they're coming over later they don't have to come over right now yeah yeah um I have a question from a listener who says dear Sagittarian matters what's the best way to start learning to draw at age 41 I love to do other crafty stuff like crochet Mm. from learning in Larchmont. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah. um, I mean, that's a great question. I, so I find that, uh, first of all, I think anyone can draw. I, I don't, I think that, you know, being 41, being four, being however old, we're it's an innate human ability uh being able to draw being able to read images to make images so you already can draw um if you're looking for a way to kind of get into it so it's not as stressful i really like blind contour drawing where you um you look at an object or a person or a scene and you kind of draw it without looking at your piece of paper you just look at whatever your your the object of your drawing is uh and as you're drawing i find it's helpful to imagine that my pencil is kind of tracing the outline of whatever i'm looking at uh blind contour drawings are always amazing they're always exciting and beautiful and lively uh and um i think that they're they're it doesn't matter how much drawing experience you have, uh, they're always like worthwhile. And that can be a nice way when you're getting started to warm up. If you feel like you can't draw or if you feel too anxious to put pencil to the paper, um, I find that that's really helpful. Yeah, I think you have to be so nice to your drawings. You just got to know it's just a function. It's how it's how it's one of the ways that you're going to metabolize an experience if you keep doing it. So you just got to let it be. It's actually none of your business. It's just like it's going to come out of you and you just have to like turn off that part of you that came alive when you were in elementary school that was like a drawing is either good or bad. You're just like turn and be like it just is. Right. And I can work on different skills and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But this this drawing right now I have to like not be a jerk to it because that's not going to help more drawings come out. 
And it's not going to make you better at drawing. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's another Linda Berryism that when we're in elementary school at a certain point, uh, there's, you know, if people tell you you're not good at drawing, um, then then everyone quits doing it because they feel like if I'm not going to become a professional artist, uh, then it's not worthwhile. Um, but it's really like, I think a fundamental, I do think it's a fundamental human trait and something that we need to not go insane, having a creative outlet, being able to make images, uh, and it's not reserved. It, that's the other thing here. I, there, art is not very popular in the town where I live and, the highest compliment anyone here pays is like, oh, you could sell this drawing. This is like, you could you could do this for money. And for me, that's not, um, I, I don't know, I like all kinds of drawings, skillfully made drawings, ones that are less skillfully made. And I think that there are many ris- different reasons to do it. And it's something that's available to all of us. And we have to fight back against that impulse uh, about like deciding whether something's good or bad. Uh, or that we can't do it. I think that you bring up also the valuable point we like to talk about on the podcast about just separating capitalism and those markers of success from your own ideas of success or accomplishment. Totally. Like it's just that idea of like, somebody could sell this and make money off of you. Good job. Like, isn't necessarily the end all be all like me making money for Jeff Bezos. The overlord is not the, the end of the line for my art. Or not like the reason I'm doing it. And probably not, probably most of people's favorite artists were not necessarily millionaires from their art. Right. Uh, But it doesn't mean that those books or records or paintings didn't deserve to exist or weren't, didn't have a huge impact on your life. Yeah, right. Yeah, most of my favorite books and movies, et cetera, are not the ones that have made the most money. Um, Yeah, and I think that, I think that, we should disentangle those things as much as we can. Capital yeah, well, and art. Cartooning will really do that for you. Too, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a colleague the other day who was a graphic designer. He was like, Oh, um, you know, now that there are so many tools like Photoshop and Illustrator that everyone can use, like have rates gone down for co- like cartoonists. And I was like, I don't know what rates you're talking about here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not a thing that's existed in my corner of comics really ever. So I can't think of any, every car, every comic book I've ever seen, every graphic novel. Mm-hmm. If you ask the artist to sit down and break down how many hours it took for that, <laughs> for, it just doesn't actually matter. Like I can't even think about the cartoonist who made the most amount of money from a book at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, they would probably, 99% of them would start weeping if you were like, now take out a calculator. Yeah. <laughs> for you to do that. <laughs> anyway, this is, a, this is my uplifting TED Talk. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Jamie Soretti, Kim Mishimoto, Jamie Rabin, Laura Perry, Ellis Bernhardt, Emily Drake, Claudia Taylor, Remedios Martinez, Soshana Ruth Wechter, and Joey Soloway. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, in particular producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. Or, this just in, he's got a Venmo. It's Hell Books on Venmo. H-E, double hockey sticks, books. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Puerto Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's speaking voice. Just to, to wheel it back a little bit to the themes of the book, can we talk a little bit about the, is it the Pat Robertson quote that you, um, that you include when you talk about this book? And that begins the book I can read it if you want yeah why don't I don't have it handy so why don't you read it this also my best friend in high school had this printed on a (laughs) t-shirt for for funny yeah (laughs) feminism is a socialist anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands 
kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. From Pat Robertson. That's beautiful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, it's beautiful. If ever there was a there was a pitch for Sorry, feminism, children. I think that's it. That's like. Yes. Yeah, I know. I do feel a little bad for the kids, but yeah, it's a, um, so Pat Robertson is a televangelist, uh, and, uh, his mentor was a guy named Harold Bredesen, who, um, was a pastor who traveled around starting up churches. And he, in the 1970s came to Victoria where I'm from and was the pastor at this church that I ended up going to later. Um, so he sort of set the tone both for Pat Robertson and for like the vibe of the church I was in. Um, so these quotes from Pat Robertson are this one and other crazy things that he says are, they feel very familiar to me or like, that's very much the tone of, of how I was raised at least in the church. I really appreciate that you did this story with these characters that are coming up against both high school, like kind of like adolescence, post-adolescence high school, Mm. like becoming their final form of like, when you kind of Mm. start in this grotesque way, becoming a woman in different (laughs) ways or coming into femininity in different ways. So these kids are coming up against those social pressures. And then you have this kind of like looming foot of this level of Christianity on top of them. And it just sounds like a really fun way to write, you know, if you have to, if you have to write conflict in different scenes, to just have that inherently in there. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the ish, the, the, you know, the kind of beliefs that I take issue with in the church are um, distilled or condensed versions of things that exist in the culture writ large, you know, like these sort of attitudes about the roles of women, for instance, uh, or, uh, it, it's just like, I do see them, them kind of mirrored in the broader culture and in the church and maybe just expressed in slightly different ways. Uh, and I, it makes me endlessly frustrated and angry. Um, and I think that's also something that you experience in this really acute way as a, like a teenage girl, because you're, yeah, you're going through this transformation and uh, becoming visible in this way that's often frightening or disturbing. When I was doing this long project with kids about gender, and there was mm-hmm. like a child psychologist and a gender theorist, and they're like, gender sometimes, you know, comes to people first as an accusation. Mm. Where it's just like you're just walking along and then someone's like, you're this, or I can see this, or I'm telling you this about yourself. And it really feels like in your book, everyone's kind of reaching that point. Yeah, I think that I'd never thought about it that way before, but I think that I agree with that and I relate to that a lot. Um, That it doesn't, yeah, uh, yeah, it feels like an accusation or at least it's first comes to you as an accusation. Yeah, and then you kind of get to decide what to do with that. Yeah, right, yeah. I do think, it, you know, like this is one of the things that's heartening to me about working with young people today is that I, teaching, is that I just feel like the way that young people are talking about, and 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 we slightly older people too are talking about gender today is like so much more nuanced and complicated and layered and so... Um, you know, so much more open in terms of like gender expression and like people living how they they want to live, how they're meant to live. And, uh, and that it gives me like an incredible hope for the future. Um, as we're simultaneously watching anti-trans legislation be introduced in like all these different states, um, I do feel like young people, I don't know, I have hope for when young people um, take over hoping uh, that the world it still exists at that point. But, um, but yeah, I have faith. Me too. Do you have any advice for, if you were able to give advice to young people or people who still had kind of the voice or pressure or fear of their family's belief systems in them, do you have any advice for either getting those thought that getting those voices out of your head or at least moving forward in your life Mm, I don't know that I do I mean I've been struggling with that a lot this past week I've spent like three days not getting out of bed because I'm so stressed out about you know uh what my family thinks about my book or these interviews and I just like can't handle it um 
so I feel like I'm a terrible person to ask. I I do think that having a network outside of your, you know, uh, what what's it, the the um the Amistad Mappen I think quote that's there's your biological family and your logical family. You know, finding people who who can be your family or like your community and that you can have a support network outside of, you know, the family you were raised in, uh, ideally in addition to the, the family you were raised in, but not all of us have uh, the luxury of that. I think that's really, really important. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it seems, feels extremely difficult to me. Jessica, do you have any advice for cartoonists or people who want to want to start doing mm. comics. Yeah, I think one thing that I would really advise um is that sometimes when people are starting off making comics, they've come up reading big long graphic novels and they have huge graphic novel ideas like this is my, you know, 1200 page epic project. I've been thinking about these characters since I was 7 or whatever. Uh, I would encourage you when you're starting to make comics to start small. Start by making like a four panel strip or a one page comic or diary comics or something that's like manageable in scope so you can finish it and you can feel accomplished and then build up if you if your ambition is to make a big long project, build up to that over time because it takes time to develop the skill set and time to develop the um uh, like fortitude to to just like sit at a desk for years on end uh without getting any like feedback or validation on your work it's very lonely and challenging and so i think starting small is what i would encourage you to do i think that's great advice um i have a question for you that is from the sagittarius matters vaults I used mm. to ask people this, but I've never had the opportunity to speak to somebody that was in um, in a, a multi-cartoonist relationship, which is, <laughs> the question was, the, the question is, what do you think it's like to date a cartoonist? Mm. And the question stems from, before I started the podcast, there was this man in Portland that had a, a taste for cartoonist women. I don't know. He had dated two <laughs> different cartoonists I knew. They had, he just broken up with one. He was going to be my roommate. I was giving him a tour of the house, and he stops by the chicken coop, and he just, like, stares into the middle distance and is like, I can't do it anymore, Nicole. And I was like, what? And he's like, can't date another cartoonist. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? I just, like, I didn't know that person well enough to ask him any follow-up yeah. questions. I was just like, yeah. okay. And then he wasn't my roommate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I just left with this question of like, what does he mean? What exquisite torture is he talking about? Like, uh-huh. So then I wondered what cartoonists felt like it was like to date a cartoonist. But I've never uh-huh. actually asked this of somebody who both is a cartoonist and dates a cartoonist. Well, I know a lot of different cartoonists and I would say that uh, dating them all would not be, you know, an equivalent experience necessarily. Like there are some cartoonists I would definitely date and some I definitely would not. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think, I mean, there's a lot of like solitude, right? Just like by the nature of the work, it involves a lot of time alone at a desk drawing. And so it, it, in order to be a cartoonist, someone has to be, have the kind of personality type that's comfortable doing that. Um, so that could mean, you know, some people might be really introverted or socially anxious or most comfortable being alone, which could be challenging to, to date someone like that, depending on your own kind of personality inclinations. Um, but not every cartoonist is like that. You know, there are lots that are like kind of outgoing and need socialization to, um, I don't know like do you like do you have an idea of like what that what that means to date a cartoonist? I think it definitely means or being married to a cartoonist mm-hmm. as it were. <laughs> I think it means being around somebody a lot who is processing things internally mm. is um, some obsessive somehow mm. some way. And yeah, needs a lot of alone time to get the thing done. Yeah, I do know that like so for instance, I this book took me about three years off and on of working on it to, to finish it. And there were moments where I would sit all day drawing. And at the end of the day, I would be like, hey, Aaron, what, what do you think about 
the book now and it's like well you've just drawn someone sitting next to a telephone uh it's no different today than it was yesterday <laughs> you know so i was like but because like you you spend so much time working on these projects and then no one is looking at it uh I, and i think i do have some need for validation uh i did end up asking him a lot for you know to read it or to like look at the drawing and say like yep good job keep keep going only another two and a half years left to go (laughs) (laughs) I mean that is the thing is like you're working in isolation and echo chamber and also Mm -hmm. I mean I find if you're working on work that's hard or personal or meaningful sometimes Mm -hmm. it is like you're Frodo putting on the ring and like (laughs) you're just like spending a whole day in like this really dark space with swooshing and screaming and then like you get up at the end of the day and like take off the ring and then you're like Walk out with your spooky writer's face, which is something my friend Beth Pickens coined when she was on a writer's retreat. And all the writers would end our three-hour-long writing hours. Mm-hmm. And just everyone would be walking around like, ugh, like space aliens. <laughs> like we were just born and just like couldn't form a sentence and, and interact. Yeah. So I think also like dating a cartoon, being married to a cartoonist would be a lot of mm. spooky writer's face. Mm, yeah. Too. Yeah, spooky writer face. uh I know that when I was working on this book, I spent quite a while. I wanted to get the cadence of the preachers right. And so I spent a lot of time watching like sermons on YouTube and I kept <laughs> like triggering myself. <laughs> I would listen to them, and, but I like, I needed to do it to get this, the speech right. But I also hate to, like, it also like, it feels really traumatic to me to listen to someone even just like with those kinds of intonations speak. And so then, then, you know, I'd come out of the, the room with spooky writer's face, but also like totally in a state of distress that I had put myself into intentionally. Uh, and then it's left to to my to my partner to help uh pick up the pieces so um so yeah that would be hard (laughs) you really got the speech right like as I was reading this I was like god did she write this in her diary like how did Mm. she get this so exact YouTube it's just there's lots of YouTube preachers but I don't know that I recommend listening to them yeah feel free but I won't again you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your book. Thanks for having me. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. It's such a beautiful book. People can get it wherever books are sold, but get it in an independent place. It's Rave, Withdrawn and Quarterly. And look up everything Jessica Campbell does. She's a fine artist. So you qualify as a textile artist? Is that what I call you? Yeah, I don't. I just call... I just call my work comics and then studio art, which is like everything else. It's a lot of textiles. It's a lot of textiles. It's really beautiful. Um, And every single comic you've put out, people should try and find and track down. Some of it might be obscure at this point, like the oily (laughs) comics thing, or they have to go pay top dollar on eBay. Um, But find Jessica, support her wherever you can. And Jessica, your longtime friend of the show, come back anytime. Thanks. Thanks. I will. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Sagittarian Matters. I think the, the Satanists are probably um, the people I'm most aligned with uh, in many ways. Um, but yet yeah, it, it doesn't super appeal to me, but they're, they're not like, um, you know, they're just, I think it's more of a joke or something. They're not, yeah. like, they don't have like actual Satanist beliefs.